Oh, hello there. I'm Melinda Catherine Gross. And I'm Michael Nixon. And we like to talk about murder. Well, you like to talk about murder, fictional murder, a <laughs> lot, uh, whether anybody wants you to or not. That's right. And Michael doesn't talk about murder nearly enough. So I would like to invite you all to join us as we explore the material of our favorite monster. Hannibal Lecter. Yes. Each week we will be discussing and dissecting the film and TV appearances of Thomas Harris's infamous serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Mostly, I'm going to try to get Michael to eat people. I won't. You will. I might, but there's only one way to find out. Tune in to Having a Friend for Dinner, available on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, bon appetit. Ooh. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Dorowski, and this week I am joined by returning guest Charlie Keeks to discuss Edmond Dantes from The Count of Monte Cristo, a book that has been on our list to cover since we started this podcast. Welcome back, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Glad you could uh, join us again to talk about Edmond Dantes. So uh, what makes you interested in the Count of Monte Cristo? Like what do you remember your first exposure to the story of the Count of Monte Cristo? Yes, I remember it vividly. So I loved foreign language and uh, actually ended up winning a award for French in high school. So that ended up being my major in college. But at this time, 10th grade, I was taking honors French um, just as my language class. And we had a teacher who was two things that are somewhat unfortunate for a teacher of high schoolers. She was young and I would say you know, physically attractive. You know, some of the uh, male students definitely had a crush on her. And she was the biggest pushover. So I remember distinctly one time we just come in, you know, we're all kind of cocky uh, sophomores. We're like, oh, just so you know, we think today we're going to, you know, watch a movie, maybe Count of Monte Cristo. She's like, uh, I don't know. I thought, you know, we could do some, you know, declensions or something. We're like, mm, no. So we just pop in the movie. Uh, we, we were entitled private school kids, that's for sure. So I think it was probably that... Um, I would not have been so bold in high school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these were all spoiled rich kids. So, yes, yeah, so very bold for sure. Uh, a little bit uh, used to getting our way. And uh, I, I was the Rory Gilmore of this uh, group for sure. Scholarship kid, terrified of everything. Um, but, uh, yeah, that film, 2002. Um, the one with uh, you know, wide, wide release. Yes, yes. Him playing the Count was uh, just released then because... I think this story takes place in 2002 or three. Um, so that was my first exposure to the story. And then I ended up reading the work. Um, I would say college age or just after. I don't think it was part of the curriculum because it's more of a um, pop culture artifact. Um, that's what Dumas specializes in, you know, uh, kind of swashbuckling uh, romance. So yeah, that's my history <laughs> with this story. Yeah, I remember just being familiar with it. I, I I don't remember where I picked it up, but just I knew it was a revenge story. Like that's just what I I, I knew. Count of Monte Cristo was a revenge story, and at some point I was at my uncle's house and he had so many movies, and I saw mm -hmm. it. I, it was a mini. It was a TV miniseries version of it from I would guess the eighties. I don't remember much about it, but I was like, oh, I've heard about this. I want to watch it, and I watched the whole thing. It was long, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, I, I was probably a teenager, but I enjoyed it. I don't remember how old I was exactly. That was my first time seeing the story. And then I read, I know as a teenager, I read the abridged version. And then at some point after high school, like as a personal challenge, I wanted to read the unabridged, which is very long. And yes. then uh, very recently, I listened to um, an audible uh, audiobook version of it that had a fantastic oh. narrator. It was like, 58 hours long <laughs> wow <laughs> the unabridged version of it and it was a really great performance if you have an audible account you might want to check out their uh, count of monte cristo 
Yes, um, you get it one so, free download. You're getting your times worth on that. Yes, yeah, that that one. I, cool. Well, at some point they had a uh, two for one classics edition, and I picked up oh. that. And I can't remember if it was Les Mis or Don Quixote that I picked up in the bundle at that point because I have all of those, but they're, they're all like sixty hour, almost sixty hour. Um, I will go audiobook. on the record of this podcast and say that Les Mis is too damn long. The musical version is the definitive Les Mis to me. I think it's just a better story. <laughs> you don't like the the segues into the history of the Paris sewer system or? <laughs> Yo, it's kind of my shibboleth to be, you know, oh, I'm a college-educated French uh, specialist. <laughs> but I think I prefer uh, what in America we call Hunchback of Notre Dame. They just call it uh, Notre Dame de Paris. I did read that in college, you know, uh, front to back, and I thought it was the better constructed uh, novel for sure. <laughs> well, uh, now that I know that you are an expert in French, uh, I I know some listeners uh enjoy and others cringe at my bad pronunciation of french words so feel free to stop me at any point uh if if i'm taking a run at a french term from from the story and i mess it up yeah no worries there but yes i'm not being pretentious i just encountered these words in the french first i think i bought my audition my edition sorry um in a um sort of the equivalent of Barnes and Noble in just central Paris. So I used to be um, be able to read French, I would say, just as quickly as English. Now I tend to look for good translations. I'm a little rusty. <laughs> so there are good. Look for a more modern translation. Uh, let me see if my favorite uh, pair have tackled it. They tend to do uh, these classics. My favorite modern translator of many of these classics are the husband and wife team of Richard Pavir and Larissa Volokonsky. Um, together, they've done a lot of the Russian classics, but Pavir himself has done my favorite Dumas translation. So I highly recommend shelling over the, the nine bucks or so um, for a modern translation. 19th century translations tend to be bad. <laughs> uh let's see i'm just trying to double check who did uh the narrator was john lee it looks like for for the edition that i listened to um on audible but i can't i'm not quickly seeing who did the translation uh but uh it's a great story i think for listeners even if you haven't read the story or seen any of the films you probably kind of like i was are familiar that counter monte cristo is a good revenge story um just a little bit more information it was written by alexander i would say it's the uh definitive revenge story of all time yeah yeah it's like our ur text of just out and out revenge this is this is what it's gonna be about <laughs> um it was written by alexander dumas and it was completed in 1844 it was serialized so it was published uh you know in chapter or even sometimes i think partial chapters uh in in a magazine uh and then finally completed in 1844 and tells the story of edmund dantes who is unjustly imprisoned he breaks out, he becomes wealthy, he blesses the lives of those who were good to him, and scorches and insults the earth of those who wronged him. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I mean, how's that, that, how's that for a logline, right? You know, you just, you've sold me right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you said, this is where I want to tell. Folks, like, I'm, I'm in. And as we'll get to in the trivia, a lot of people have done versions of this, even if it's not a direct adaptation. There's a lot of, like, inspired by Monte Cristo stories that have been uh, uh, written or performed or filmed. Um, it is um, one of our go-to texts, I think, for... Um, you know, like inspi inspired by kind of stories. Yes. Um, but if, if, even if you haven't read or seen Count of Monte Cristo, you probably know something from Alexandre Dumas because that man was prolific. Um, <laughs> on Wikipedia, I saw that his plays, articles, and novels total more than 100,000 published pages, which is so much content <laughs> that, yes. that he produced. Uh, I just, I can't even imagine producing 100,000 pages of published work you know um he also uh founded a theater which sometimes premiered stage adaptations of his novels conveniently enough you know if you've got that kind of an in <laughs> you might as well uh double dip on the stories that you've written uh it's uh, a little bit of family history about him dumas father was born to a french uh aristocrat and an african slave in haiti and the life of his father 
was written about in a 2012 biography that is called Black Count, Glory, Revolution, Betrayal, and the Real Count of Monte Cristo. And that biography won a Pulitzer in 2013. And I saw that it's currently, um, it, it's been optioned for an app for a film adaptation. Ooh, I'm very excited. I read this very shortly after graduating from college. I remember reading it when I lived in Madison, Wisconsin. I picked it up there and I gave it five stars on Goodreads. That's an unbiased review from 2013 on the bio of Dumas' father. Yeah, uh, I, I haven't read it, mom. but when I when I saw that it won the Pulitzer and I read the summary, I'm like, well, maybe that'll be my next Audible credit will be for <laughs> for that version or... Go yes, see if I can find I, it, uh, you know, uh, at the library or something, because it, it definitely looked extremely intriguing. Yes, uh, I had no idea when I read the uh, Alexandre Dumas novels about any of his background. And I think it really uh, sheds light on his very unusual upbringing. Yes. Um on Wikipedia, they also had this quote from a contemporary of Dumas, Watts Phillips, who was an English playwright and came to know Dumas. And he said of Alexander Dumas, uh, the most generous, large-hearted being in the world, he was also he also was the most delightfully amusing and egotistical creature on the face of the earth. His tongue was like a windmill. Once set in motion, you never knew when he would stop, especially if the theme was himself. <laughs> Which... And now, now, like, I want a story of Dumas, like, uh, of him himself, because that sounds like, uh, you know, the kind of character that once you see, you see performed on, uh, on mm -hmm. film, you're like, well, why wasn't this character always in my life? And what uh, a great role for a mixed race actor, right? You know, he yeah. just has this really interesting look to him that is very, you know, uh, unique, I would say. You know, he, he's rocking this, uh, you know, his natural uh, textured hair in his portrait. So yeah, yeah if, if they white if they do a mini series, but then they whitewash him, I will like launch a campaign to be like, no, cast <laughs> a historically accurate Dumas, you know, the father and you know his uh, children and all that. <laughs> yes, and, well, and um, be because of you know he, he's in the eighteen hundred, we do have uh, and he, he was famous enough. We have actual photos, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, of him and types or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and, and he just even in those, you just look at him, you're like, that guy's a character. I don't know. Yes. Like, I think if you were like He's... rifling through old tiny photos, you'd stop <laughs> on his and say, this this guy would have been fun to know, even if you don't know anything about him. <laughs> yeah, it definitely looks like he used his royalties to eat well. He's a yes. big dude. <laughs> yeah, yes, he is. Um, like his, his father is like in like amazing tip top shape and, you know, on the cover of Black Cow, you know, he's on this. Oh, uh, he looks like a superhero on that cover. He does. And then his son is like, pass me the filet mignon and the <laughs> Cabernet, please. <laughs> so yeah. Yes, yeah, he, he had the sedentary art life. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, Dumas, we mentioned how prolific he was, but he did a work um, with an uncredited, though well-compensated collaborator named Auguste Maquette, I, if that's how that's pronounced. Uh, and Maquette had a hand in outlining... Uh, probably Maquet, okay. Maquet had a hand in outlining the plot of the Count of Monte Cristo and also the Three Musketeers, which are the most famous works uh, coming from Dumas. And that collaboration, so again, um, Maquet was was paid uh like they, they had contracts he was paid but his name would never appear on anything he sued for credit as co-author to their work which included 18 <laughs> novels at that point uh that they they had um, worked together and it seems from uh my cursory so so maybe there's more to this but it seems like uh maquet would help with the plot outline and making all the pieces fit together but dumas did all the actual writing like all the all the prose is dumas but a lot of the plot work uh was worked out with maquet um, but he sued for credit and the court found in Dumas favor, um, it, <laughs> like pretty, uh, like, like, uh, emphatically <laughs> found in Dumas favor. And as a uh, side note, I did not know this, but there is a film called L'Autre Dumas, which means the other Dumas, um, came out about 10 years ago with the, um, legend, uh, Gérard Depardieu playing Dumas and it, the, it's about, uh, this collaborator Maquet. And um, as if foreshadowing, you know what I just said, the um, a council for black people in France critiqued this uh, white actor playing 
uh, biracial ah. Duma. So I'm not the only mm. one. <laughs> okay. Um, and while saying that, uh, you know, that Make helped outline the plot, uh, the plot of Count of Monte Cristo, mm-hmm. uh, Dumas was reusing plot elements and themes from an earlier novel he wrote called George, George, George George's is what it looks uh, like. So yeah, uh, George, George without mm-hmm. Maquet. So Maquet wasn't involved in that novel. Uh, and there's definitely overlaps between that novel and the Count of Monte Cristo. So it's not as though Maquet was like the, you know, the, the, the idea <laughs> generator for the Count of Monte Cristo. They, and again, they did I'm work together. so blown away by how prolific he is. Georges came out in 1843. I'm like, I will like have an idea and like, you know, five years, let it marinate. If I were Dumas, yeah. I would have like <laughs> dropped my 70,000 word short novel and like, boom, next. So yeah, he's pretty much like a, publisher's dream in terms of how um great he was at really just uh publishing just turning it out i mean it's dickensian like like uh, the, the other author yes. who feels this way is charles dickens like when he, yes <laughs> we see i and uh some of this maybe like for dickens famously paid by the word and he used a lot of them and I, i'm wondering if some of that is what we have going on with dumas as well <laughs> Yes, I think both of them not coming from necessarily like kind of the most leisured class in France. You know, France at this point is a very um, classist society. So I feel like, you know, they felt like just, you know, like working writers, you know, that publish or perish, but <laughs> you know, in a very uh, literal sense. So. Yeah, I'm like you. I've got, um, you know, my my Google Docs and my notebooks filled with like, oh, here's an idea. And like (laughs) half sketched out the plot, you know, and and then maybe I'll get back to that at some point. And it feels like they'd they'd have churned out every single one of those. Exactly. Um, The Count of Monte Cristo was, um, as we said, released in a serialized form. And it is believed to have been the most popular reading in Europe when it was being released. Like it was like the water cooler story. Everyone was, was reading every chapter and talking about it and waiting eagerly for the next chapter to be released um, in the magazine. And it was uh, like I said, the the most popular thing (laughs) that was being produced, which I think is significant. Like, well done. Yes. (laughs) Okay. The story has been adapted a lot. Uh, and I mean a lot. There are dozens of film and television adaptations, starting with a 1908 silent film. Um, I also like the most recent things I saw on the list of adaptations. There's a Mexican telenovela that was inspired by it in 2016. There's a 2018 Japanese drama called Gorgeous Revenge, which strong <laughs> titling work, but right there. And a 2018 Sri Lankan TV series that adapted Count of Monte Cristo. So it's not just you know, European or, or, uh, you know, Hollywood that's doing these adaptations. Like this is spreading all over the world, um, as, Mm -hmm. as a text that is inspiring modern adaptations. Yes. Um, Oh, go ahead. Uh, and it just, it feels like one of the most protagonist driven classics out there at this Mm -hmm. time, these, um, social commentary novels were flourishing and were often, you know, very, um, filled out, uh, cast you know list uh but here it really feel all the action feels driven by the motivations of edmond dantes in the late 1800s there were several unauthorized book sequels published and it feels like that's something that you'd see more now that it's public domain <laughs> like more people be writing sequels you know carrying on the story but it feels like from what i saw more people are doing works inspired by rather than like direct sequels to uh the story um, and speaking of adaptations and works inspired by it, Dumas and Maquette wrote four plays telling the story. They broke the story into four different, four different plays that they would <laughs> run, um, often doing like part one and part two on back to back nights for a few weeks. And then part three and part four on back to back nights for a few weeks. It seemed, uh, in, in what I saw about that in 2009, a musical adaptation premiered in Switzerland. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, but I, I was like, as I was looking through adaptations, like surely there's been a Broadway musical, you know, swing at this text. Uh, and speaking yes, of the any, other adaptations, um, uh, local to Utah fans, it did come to Utah at uh, BYU's campus. Um, oh, looks like it was pretty recent, actually. So I missed yeah, that. There was a, yes, so uh, that's kind of exciting. Hopefully, it gets you know, some uh, encores. Yeah. 
Um, and of course, there have been many radio adaptations from the Golden Age of Radio up through a fairly recent BBC adaptation of this. And also, this one surprised me a little bit, three video games <laughs> inspired by the novel. I'm guessing they lean more on the revenge side of the plot than the blessing <laughs> those who were good to you side of the plot. Very likely so. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we move on to the spoiler synopsis, we want to thank every listener who has downloaded this episode. And we also want to thank those of you who support the show on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about newly released films and trailers or books or TV shows. And we also give monthly updates on our fantasy box office and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss so now the full summary and i just want to give a note this book is massive i'm trimming a lot for the sake of time and clarity it is worth taking the time to read the original text or to listen to it as an audiobook i think those are great endeavors this is a streamlined plot summary (laughs) Uh, if you've seen any adaptations you know a lot gets cut um there's a lot that can be trimmed to turn this a massive novel into a two hour film. Uh, some of that's going to be happening and also some streamlining when we get towards the end, because so much of the plot actually like intertwines the machinations that uh, Edmund Dantes is doing. And I'm just going to uh, clarify that a little instead of like bouncing through all the uh, intertwining that happens. So Edmund Dantes is a perfectly moral young man and he is leading a pretty perfect life when the novel opens. Uh, everything is coming up Edmund. At the age of 19, the owner of the shipping company he's working for loves him and is about to make him a captain of a vessel. On the last uh, trip that he was on, the previous captain died uh, and left Edmund with a few tasks, but Edmund is devotedly carrying those out. The crew loved Edmund and said he did a great job taking over after the captain died. Uh, Edmund is also engaged to Mercedes, who's the most beautiful and likable woman on the island. Uh, All the men want to marry her, but Edmund is the one that, that has won her heart. Everyone respects Edmund because he is a completely honest uh, man and he's a super hard worker well almost everyone respects him there are a few people who are a bit jealous so there's Danglars who is the treasurer on the ship where Edmund is about to become captain and he's jealous of Edmund's professional success and Mondego is in love with Mercedes and Caderousse I can't remember if that's how that's pronounced from the audio yeah, Caderousse okay yeah. Caderousse he just thinks no man should be as lucky as Edmund. Like the others have like a very specific thing that bothers them. And Cotterus is just like, oh, he's just living a charmed life. And that that's ridiculous. <laughs> so Denglars, Mondego and Cotterus, while slightly drunk, they write a letter accusing Edmund of being a Bonapartist, which this is set during the time of Bonaparte, Napoleon's exile. Mm-hmm. And they accuse him of conspiring uh, to help return Napoleon to power. And obviously there is now the democratic government that would not be a fan of the emperor returning. Uh, now, in a bit of bad luck for Edmund, his old captain, who died and asked him to deliver a letter for him as one of his last tasks, was a Bonapartist. And that letter definitely involves a conspiracy <laughs> to help Napoleon return to power. And Edmund is carrying that, though he doesn't know it. And he's <laughs> going to deliver it to a Bonapartist. But again, he doesn't know that. Um He, as far as he knows, is just carrying out his captain's last order. On his wedding day, before he actually gets married, Edmund is arrested because of the letter that was written by these three jealous men. And the government official in charge of Edmund's case is Monsieur Villefort. And Villefort, at first, just seems perfectly nice. He says, this is so clearly a misunderstanding. You are innocent. You're not a Bonapartist. This is ridiculous. Uh, And then he reads the letter that Edmund was carrying from the captain, and he immediately burns the letter and sends Edmund to an island prison for life. The Chateau d'If. D'If. Because d'If. Okay. That letter implicated Villefort's father as a Bonapartist. (laughs) And Villefort is a very ambitious young man, and he's rising through the ranks of the new government, and he does not want anyone to know that his father was a Bonapartist, so he can't have anyone who possibly knows anything about that letter hanging around. So... Uh, just a very quick turn in Edmund's fortunes right there. At this prison, Edmund is locked into a deep, dank hole in the rock. That's his cell. It's just basically he's in a cave and he's there for years. In total, he's going to be there for about 14 years, I think is the total. Uh, but after he's been there for a while, he hears scraping and he discovers another inmate from one cave over is trying to tunnel freedom. That inmate is a super genius, but made a miscalculation and actually tunneled into Edmund's cell instead of 
the wall on the outside. <laughs> so uh, other than this, though, we're led to believe that this uh, other inmate, Abe Faria, is a super genius in every way. And he know he's he's just so well informed about science and history and government and economics and also human nature. Um, and now their cells have this tunnel connection and they're bored and they're imprisoned and they have nothing to do. So Faria teaches Edmund everything that he knows. Like it becomes a, a teacher student relationship. And this includes Faria telling Edmund about a secret buried treasure that they can share when they escape because they're <laughs> still going to be working on a tunnel to escape. And also Faria tells poor, simple, trusting Edmund uh, the truth because Edmund just figures this is, uh, this is just the worst luck that I ended up here in jail. And Faria hears his story and says, Oh, Edmund, uh, I've Sherlocked everything in closed room style. You told me what was going on. I've solved everything. And I know exactly who's responsible for you being in jail. And he, he mentions the three men that must have been jealous. And also uh, the, the effort that he must have had a reason for putting Edmund here. So now Edmund is like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, uh, and he, he starts to be motivated by like anger and hatred. Whereas before he was just confused. So after 14 years in prison, Edmund is close to escaping with his friend when Abe Faria dies uh, from an illness. And Edmund realizes he now has an easier way than continuing to dig their tunnel uh, out. He waits until the guards confirm that Faria is dead. Then he sneaks in and switches bodies. So he switches places with Faria. And Edmund figures, I'll be buried in the shallow grave because the guards are going to be lazy. And I'll just dig my way out and escape at night. This is great. But the guards actually tie a weight to his legs and throw him into the ocean. Fortunately, as a former sailor, even after 14 years away from the water, Edmund is a great <laughs> swimmer, and he's able to cut himself free and escape. Eventually, Edmund makes his way to the island of Monte Cristo, which is where that buried treasure was. And if you're thinking a pirate's chest with some gold coins in it, you are mistaken. Think more like of the treasure cave in Aladdin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, he... he, he um, discovers underground series of caves that are just loaded with loot and treasure. And so now Edmund Dantes, you know, he's risen from the ocean, perhaps we could say reborn and now armed with knowledge of science, economics, history, and human nature uh, because of his teacher. And also now basically unlimited resources. He has a twofold mission. He wants to bless those that were good to him in his previous life and ruin those that wronged him. And he very much views it as like his previous life. Like there is before imprisonment and now, there was this time in jail and now there's a new version of Edmund Dantes that has escaped. So disguising himself as a priest, Edmund goes and finds Cotterus living as a struggling innkeeper. Edmund claims to be in charge of discharging Edmund Dante's will. Uh, he says he died in prison and that Edmund wanted a diamond or the value of this diamond, and it's a large diamond, to be given to the men who were kindest to Edmund in his life. After some coaxing, Cotterus <laughs> like spills all the beans. And he tells everything about the plot back in the day, who was going to do what. And he says, like, I regret that I had a hand in ruining Edmondante's life. And my life has been cursed ever since. Like, I, I ruined my own life the day I ruined his life. But the other two men who are responsible, Danglars and Mondego, they're filthy rich and successful. And Mondego mar uh, married Mercedes. And he also reveals that Edmund's father died from grief and neglect after Edmund went to jail. Though Mercedes and Edmund's old boss, Morel, they both tried to get Edmund freed from jail and also tried to care for Edmund's father. Like they were all in on taking care of him, but Edmund's father was so grief stricken, like he just kind of died. Um, and so uh, Edmund in this disguise leaves the diamond for Carterus, uh, as a thank you for sharing all this information. Also sensing that his regret was real. Uh, I, I don't think I cover it much more, but just know Kataru's still, uh, he ends up dying in a miserable way and having an awful life for the rest of his life because of his greed and his wife's greed. Uh, but I'm going to move on uh, because that becomes a very minor subplot at this point. So now Morel, who was Edmund's old boss, um, he is presently on the brink of financial ruin. And Edmund anonymously saves his bacon and makes Morel wealthier than he had ever been. Um, a creditor mysteriously forgives all of Morel's debts. Uh, and the family doesn't know that Edmund had bought all those debts secretly. And he's the one that forgives them. And also a ship that had been lost at sea miraculously reappears as though it was newly built and is laden with a wealth of goods. As <laughs> um, though so it was just on the most successful trading voyage in history. So now Morel has been taken care of. And I hope you enjoyed that moment of niceness from Edmund Dantes, because from here on out, things <laughs> are going to get a bit more revenge -y rather than a blessing-y. So we're going to jump ahead 10 years. 
And this mysterious Count of Monte Cristo is the new man about town, and he's in Rome, and the Count rescues Albert de Morcef from bandits. And Albert is the son of Mercedes and Mondego. So this is love of Edmund's life's son. And a thankful Albert asks if he can in, uh, introduce the Count of Monte Cristo into Parisian society, which is exactly what the Count wanted to happen. And he may have told the uh, uh, the bandits to, <laughs> to kidnap Albert just so that this could happen exactly as it is. Um, and enough time has passed that when the Count of Monte Cristo is introduced into Parisian society, Danglars, Mondego, and Villefort all fail to recognize Edmund, though Mercedes is a bit suspicious. Um, now the revenges that are about to be carried out, like this is the bulk of the book is these revenge. And I just want to say they're intricate and it's time consuming to describe and the schemes are very interwoven and the chapters bounce about, you know, between all of them. And you see like pieces on a chessboard getting moved and it's very worth reading the novel and kind of reveling in these bad people about to get their comeuppance. But for simplicity, I'm breaking down each revenge individually, and I'm going to give a quick version of it. So Mondego, who is wealthy and a senator, and he's the one who married Mercedes and is the father of Albert or Albert. Yeah. Um, the Count is able to have it publicly revealed that Mondego made his fortune by betraying his old boss, Ali Pacha. And he had not just betraying him, but like having him killed, basically. And after Ali Pacha dies, Mondego sold Pacha's wife and daughter into slavery to make a little extra profit that way. <laughs> um, and the Count of Monte Cristo has bought Pacha's daughter out of slavery mm -hmm. and raised her basically as his own daughter. And he uses her to accuse Mondego at a Senate hearing. So it's not just like, oh, we're going to get this out. Like it's in the most public place imaginable. And Mondego commits suicide. And then Albert and Mercedes run away in disgrace. All right. So now we're going to do Villefort's revenge. This one is crazy. Uh, and trying to sum, sum this one up <laughs> was a stretch because Edmund manipulates Villefort's wife, um, his, her inclinations towards serial killing. I just, let's just say. And he basically is able to subtly guide her into murdering most of Villefort's family. Uh, and adding to the emotional strain is Villefort's has a beloved daughter who everyone thinks she is the serial killer. So not only are family members dropping dead left and right, uh, but the authorities think his most beloved daughter is the one who is guilty. And we also learned that Villefort had an illegitimate baby that he thought was stillborn and he was burying it in a casket and the casket got stolen and the baby was actually alive. But okay, that's just another weird subplot. That's off to the side. <laughs> so now uh, misfortune is piling up on him and Villefort goes insane. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, so, so one guy committed suicide, the next one's insane. And now uh, for Danglars, I kid you not, Edmund just manipulates the French stock exchange to leave him penniless. Uh, that's a very quick version of it. <laughs> <laughs> he he guides Danglars into a lot of investments and then he uh Edmund or the Counter Monte Cristo is able to manipulate the stock so that all his investments crash and he's basically penniless, but he steals the cash that he'd been hoarding and runs away. Uh, but Edmund makes sure that bandit his bandit buddies from back in Rome pick him up and rob him of everything that he has, so he is now literally penniless. <laughs> all right. So now a couple subplots that have happened. Villefort's daughter, Valentine, the one who people thought might be the serial killer killing off the entire household. She was secretly in love with Morel's son. Um, and remember, Morel was Edmund's awesome boss back in the day. So in the midst of all this revenge, Edmund works to ensure that Valentine and Maximilian Morel could get together. Um, and this includes the use of what is simultaneously one of my favorite and least favorite plot devices, drugs that make you appear dead. So when everyone is thinking Valentine is a serial killer, uh, Edmund poisons her with this drug to make her appear dead. And everyone realizes, well, she can't be the killer. It must be the actual killer. Uh, but she's actually still alive. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a classic. It's Romeo and Juliet. It gets used mm -hmm. all the time. And I always wonder if you don't have a heartbeat, you are dead, right? <laughs> That's my, my reaction always. Whenever these, these kinds of drugs get used as a plot device. Um, now that his schemes are complete, this is the, the the kind of like final epilogue. The Count wonders if he might be able to love Wait, again. Wait, Joseph, and... before you continue with that. Yeah. I, I, I run CPR courses for my company. So um, the bigger concern is brain death mm -hmm. right. than yes. a non-beating heart. And you do have like four to ten minutes before your <laughs> well, brain is... will die. Brain damage at like five minutes, brain death at about ten minutes without flowing blood. 
Okay. Uh, then my, my point still stands <laughs> because yes. these drugs are always like hours, like sometimes even like burials of people who appear dead and <laughs> then suddenly they're miraculously not dead. I, I always take it that the implication is that it's an extremely slow heartbeat and bad doctors. But checking. yes. And, and somehow <laughs> you're continuing the flow of blood and oxygen to the brain in a recoverable fashion, which is not super valid because you do need to do this rapidly. <laughs> yeah. but um yeah so uh that that's one of the plot points and it's so like soap opery but it works because this is like a very um broad romantic adventure story that's going to have a lot of soap opera elements so i give it a pass in this one um, you know joseph people give soap operas a lot of crap but really it's just when it's done poorly when it's done yes, like this oh. it's fantastic oh yeah 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 like yeah like the twists and turns and uh mistaken identities and disguises and serial killer and and, and economic woes like all all this yeah yeah when it's done well you you can eat it up but but on daytime tv when they're doing seven episodes a week and it's like the soft focus lens and the weird music okay you know random twins and 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 crazy deaths it's like oh this sucks but when it's good like this I mean, I've never really engaged with this, but I I have to guess there's probably actually like maybe maybe there's more there than its reputation stats, you know, stats for. Like if you were willing to like up, uh, embrace the absurdity, I think there might be more there. All right, but the final bit of the epilogue, which I think usually gets cut from adaptations, people ignore this part because his schemes are complete, and the count is wondering if he might be able to love again, and not with the widowed Mercedes, who is still out there, but with Haiti, who is the girl that he brought out of slavery and raised as his own daughter. He says, yes, maybe I can love her not as a daughter, and she can love me not as a father, but we can just love each other as a romantic pair, and that is Edmund Dante's <laughs> happily ever after. Um, and again, most adaptations, I think, just drop that plot line entirely. Um, I think some actually end up with having Haiti and, um, and Mercedes son end up together as like, that's the peaceful, like, uh, you know, this is where, where the revenge is going to end, you know, is at that point. Uh, But the book book does not choose that path. (laughs) Sort of a proto Woody Allen in a way. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> that is a down. sentence I never want to hear, <laughs> hear uttered again. Fair, fair. Um, yeah, like I remember, uh, I, I, I have not watched many of the adaptations recently, but I think often a big finale, like a final moment is that Edmund is like on the brink of killing Albert or Albert. Uh, and then Mercedes begs for mercy for her son. And, and But the book doesn't really go down that path at all. Correct. Yeah, it's just more he finishes his revenge and then says, maybe I can love this girl I was raising as my daughter. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, I, I went and found one of the lines, which uh, this is uh, Edmund uh, at near near the very end of the, the novel, where you're kind of like, oh, he really pulled it off. He says, uh, well, the narrator says, perhaps she loved him otherwise than as a daughter loves a father. Alas, murmured he with intense suffering. I might then have been happy yet. And then, like, he keeps dwelling on this after that point. <laughs> so, so is it so, like, ambiguous really in the book, or do they get together? I, I think, I think uh, if I, I, my, I, they are together at the end. Like, that's the, they, that's the upshot. I, I think there's another speech where, where it's kind of like, I loved you this way before, but now I love you this way. And All everyone right, carries yeah. on. Well, <laughs> yeah. if they're both like I said, there's a reason that one gets. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason that part gets dropped from most adaptations. Yes. <laughs> so, Charlie, this is the, as you said, kind of like our ur text of revenge. Um, do you think there's um, character beats that make us love it or is it just waiting for the comeuppance of all these villains like they, they do legitimately bad things and you want the poetic justice of their lives being ruined the way Edmund's were was ruined I would say in Dumas work in general um the characters are somewhat uh corresponding to tropes and so I think that for me what's compelling about the story is the plot points there are some scenes that are incredibly well drawn i still remember reading when he switches out in the body bag you know that's just so uh, compelling 
And so I believe that um, Edmond is definitely what you would call an everyman. You know, he starts in this place of innocence, this Eden, so to speak, and through everything that happens to him, uh, I think somewhat controversially, I think there's there's kind of famous misreadings. My favorite misreading of the Count of Monte Cristo was my um, sister was in an LDS seminary class. This is a um, outside school, um, somewhat like Sunday school uh, class, and she had a teacher say something that the Count of Monte Cristo is about forgiveness. And my sister, um, admirably, I think, and also hilariously, just raises her hand is like, no, it's not. <laughs> he no, he gets everything never. he wanted and forgives no one. <laughs> That's really the takeaway. And so it's a somewhat interesting character arc, I suppose, that um, contrary to some maybe um, Christian themes of forgiveness that you might see in, say, um, Les Miserables, I don't think that he really forgives the people he who wronged him. I think it's a much more ancient um, sort of uh, moral. Eye for an eye. Yes, yes. It's Old Testament for sure and not New Testament. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I think, um, I, I mean, we mentioned how many adaptations there are. I think a lot of adaptations do more work in let, making the audience feel Edmund might have lost his way. Like in <laughs> in going for the revenge in the book, it's just like rah rah revenge. These guys <laughs> deserve it, and you get a happily ever after when you've carried it out. And my memory of I, I should have gone and watched some of these adaptations, but I, I think adaptations often make you uh, feel that maybe he's going too far and he's lost what made him like have justice on his side in his just thirst for all out revenge. I think that's uh, accurate. I think when you go back to the primary text, you're surprised at how uh, much he emerges from that prison, uh, a changed person and perhaps not for the better um, in terms of his, his moral calculus. He goes from a complete innocent to uh, the opposite of that. <laughs> really, uh, yeah. yeah, jaded and yeah, we'll just we'll stop at nothing to destroy his enemies. And uh, but at the same time, like one of my favorite parts of the book is when he employs his like logic and his chess like strategy to bless the life of Morel. Like it's so yes. satisfying when the good things happen and when like the dominoes fall and you, and you see like, oh, they were all right on the precipice. And now suddenly like the whole family, the whole Morel family is is blessed. And Edmund wanted no um, recognition that he had a hand in this. You know, he wants it to just almost be seen as providence is is um you know giving him moral moral desserts for having lived a good life you know he's getting the good outcome uh that he had earned but that life was depriving him of yes and there's a lot that... of class um commentary all the um titles are bought rather than necessarily mm -hmm. um hereditary uh, mondego buys his title hence the uh Montserrat. Uh, title um and of course he just i think he just invents a new um count and people are like monte cristo what's that he's like <laughs> yes. it's what and, i and am the count like, of it's it's yeah. an uninhabitable rock yes <laughs> like yeah, like so goats I, can barely survive there is what we're told basically. yes i i always loved that element that it feels um pretty savage commentary on the um class system of uh the second empire you know early uh 19th century france because it is a historical uh, pretty much all of dumas um works are um historical novels and plays they're not contemporary to when they were published they're set several decades in the past so it may have been um inspired you know just kind of looking at some of this backstory it looks like um the count the black count that we mentioned you know his father um really suffered a demotion when napoleon came on the scene and so i think there's definitely some personal um feelings coming out in the plot oh i think so for sure and uh bonapartist is my favorite random insult when someone's frustrating me to just mutter uh, at them <laughs> excellent <laughs> because, because it's like when you read these stories like you see how 
like even like the whisper of being a Bonapartist ruined people's <laughs> lives. Yeah. Um, and it's it's so key to that moment in history, right? You know, it, it's a, it's a very historical you know a moment where where that was like a slanderous thing. Uh, and it's also fun to say just Bonapartist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but but I think the book does a good job of like making you feel some of the pressure that um the like rapid changes of government would have on an average you know the average citizen yes i Um, studied this as my major and i'm still continually amazed at the period from the what we know as the french revolution to about mm, 1868 there is a new revolution and intense intense social change every single year in that uh you know century or so and so it had to be completely yeah. fascinating to watch um uh to be sucked into the different factions as uh, uh everything's happening in real time i he used it's kind of- he used the device of historical fiction i think to really comment on the time he was publishing yeah absolutely um i remember reading a biography about Shakespeare and it was talking about like the when he was growing up the flip-flops between Catholicism and uh the church yes. being, you know like, I, like I the, recommend like, the, everyone um, has to live this way everyone has to live that way and it, like these are like massive issues of identity and you know religion and self and all these other things that are being mandated and they're being flip-flopped multiple times in your lifetime and I think um from a a uh, you know, more secular uh, version of that is what's what's happening in France in mm-hmm. you know in the, in those years where these things that you know define uh, in many ways like success uh, and define your status uh, suddenly become illegal. <laughs> um, yes, you know, from from one year to the next, and then suddenly they become great again uh, for a narrow window, and then they become illegal again. <laughs> yes, it's interesting because his mentor, who I would probably say is my favorite. Um, character and it looks like a lot of the characters were just straight up real people or inspired by real people so it looks like the abbe was a real um portuguese abbe um at this time uh he definitely has a very robust and strong uh moral system so it's interesting to see how um how different being in in this island, right? This isolation, they're literally in maximum security prison. Um, how much more complex the Abbey's um, uh, moral code. It seems like Edmond kind of wrestles with what does it mean to be a good person when you're surrounded by society, by evil? And so going back to our um, uh, previous podcast at the good place it's almost like a reverse good place like the the isolation happens at the very beginning and then the very like complex moral calculus who's good who's evil like unfolds um after yeah and um when we have like some of that uh training coming from faria Mm -hmm. which uh, that is uh, that and then the immediate aftermath when he's helping morel those are like from like a pure like oh i'm loving this kind of enjoyment of the story those are my favorite parts like when he when he's in jail but he's getting all this knowledge you know dumped on him and they are having some of those philosophical discussions and then you see him come out and like just bless the life of someone who's on the brink of disaster it's like oh this, this is so great and then like you you get the descent into the revenge and um, I don't think I don't feel like the conclusion of the novel like does any condemnation of Dante's actions, uh, you know, as the Count of Monte Cristo and all the revenge that he gets. Yeah, but he's definitely I the think, hero. He's not a villain yeah. in the way of you know Becky Sharp or something. There's no downfall per se. He mm-hmm. he is victorious. You cheer for him. Yes, and, and that's what you're supposed to do, I think, as a reader. But I wonder if like uh abe faria would be cheering for him like from some of the philosophy that gets espoused there like there's enough commentary there where it's like hmm, I, I think there's maybe more happening in that point and it gets forgotten by edmund as he becomes obsessed with revenge but again there's no uh like m- moral force in the world that that says you've gone too far in your quest for revenge and causes a downfall i think it's up to the reader to have to try and pick that up if you think it if you feel that way yes 
because I mean, the, the uh, I mean, the, the idea of like a moral balance or good choices leading to blessings and bad choices leading to despair. That is not the reality that's presented in this book. Uh, Correct. At he, all. Uh, he starts. Edmund as, is a boy scout. Yes. Unimpeachable at the beginning. And um, definitely gets, um, yeah, I think even now, you know, one of the most horrific outcomes you can think, you know, everything you care about stripped away from you and uh, thrown away to rot and die. So, Yeah, your reputation ruined, your family dying, you know, as you're gone and mm -hmm. they're them not understanding what's going on you're the love of your life marrying the man who imprisoned you <laughs> yes. like everything bad to me what you just said is like the moral core of this story the love triangle between Mercedes, um mondego and dantes and i feel like in the book compared to some of the adaptations there's like a lot more you know backstory and um uh you know you see some of the history you know, when he's when he's in prison you know the courtship but i think it's usually dialed down to those most fundamental um ideas of the part i remember from the movie the most is when you know she says i don't need a ring i only need the string tied around my finger you know so she is swearing eternal fidelity but like um what's odysseus's wife's name uh per Persef Perse no, uh, not Persephone, Pe no. No, it's um, Penelope. Penelope. Penelope, yes, Penelope. thank you. I was getting the wrong so, yeah, P <laughs> ending in P sound. Yes, so to me, uh, Mercedes seems to be very much modeled on Penelope, and it's this idea of the unfaithful woman who doesn't wait for you. So it's kind of interesting. But actually. Penelope is the faithful woman, right? She, It's Odysseus who's unfaithful. Correct. <laughs> He's the one who's yes, so it's, it's like turning it on its head. It's like, what if yeah. all of your worst suspicions about and, your fiancé, I mean, <laughs> they're true. <laughs> for for Mercedes, like I see, uh, like when I was uh, just poking around the internet, looking at stuff on Monte Cristo, like I see some people like saying, well, oh, she, you know, she's oh, married yeah. to the enemy. Very, very, and then, uh, but then a lot of people would respond like, 14 years like that's a really long time for him to have been in jail yeah and in the book, I, I, I don't think the book says exactly how long it was i mean there's that time jump and the sun is so at least probably five years right because the sun's like a young man doing his grand tour around europe uh, -huh. uh you know so and there's a at least a 10 year jump after he's out of prison to when uh he encounters um albert in rome so uh, at least, I would say, five years that Mercedes mm -hmm. waited before uh, and there's you know, marrying Mondego. Interesting um, kind of uh, cultural, you know, class things. A lot of this takes place in the south of France, and both Mercedes and Fernand are Catalan, which, of course, is more the culture of uh, modern, you know, Barcelona. So they're, they're actually cousins, so... That's interesting. But it's a much more, a much more insular society. Right? Correct. Yes. And so they're coming from, yeah, the same. In fact, I would say that if anything, Fernand seems like a logical match for her. So yeah, the, the people hating on Mercedes, I think, are ignoring um, the realities of being a woman in you know, 18, yeah. 1810 <laughs> Southern France, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and don't a few... Uh, like, like, didn't that 2001 or two adaptations say that Albert is actually Edmund's son? Like the, oh you know, my they, goodness. They... Yes. That's such a fan theory. That's like, how would that happen? I, yeah, I mean, I guess obviously before he, um, gets imprisoned, but, yeah. but I don't think the timeline li lines up and also, no, I don't think all. the it's... Edmund that we have would have, um, slept with his fiance before they were married. Like he was so moral. He would have waited for marriage. Right? Yeah, I, I think it's a ridiculous plot that people love the you know, sort of, uh, you know, I would call it like a Star Wars twist, you know, right? You know, that paternity being yeah. driving, but I think it's, yeah, kind of a ridiculous uh, twist on the lo internal logic of the novel. Um, yeah, and I, I think the more interesting character of Edmund is the one who is so right and just and moral and ethical who becomes so obsessed with the revenge that he does all these unethical things like to the point where he's basically like weaponizing a serial killer to get yes. his revenge and he's he's fine him, with that him spying on his ex's son that's not his son to me is way more compelling and way creepier so isn't there a whole mm -hmm. plot that lasts several chapters around um mardi gras 
I think that's when he first sees Albert is like at a Mardi Gras. Well, and he also party. takes Albert to the island of Monte Cristo and like gets him super drugged up. Yes, he does. I remember not yeah. knowing some of the French vocabulary and like looking at this and being like, what strain of like opium or that? It's hard drugs too. <laughs> so yes, he goes from Boy yeah. Scout to like heroin dealer straight up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and again, I think we as, as, audiences particularly like uh you know american audiences with our like puritanical streak we want to see the commentary that edmund has lost himself in this revenge and that he 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 has no chance at happiness that's not um, in the end the, uh, and it's really interesting French to read the system. book and that's yeah that's not what this book is about at all and, and and like i think the adaptations often go that route and so i even though i read that annotated version and i read the underbridge at some point like a decade ago when i was listening to the audiobook i kept waiting for some commentary <laughs> about that and just, it, it never it never comes nah. i think it's because i'm so trained but be it either through the versions that we tell in popular culture now mm-hmm. or the expectation again because of the puritanical streak um you know of, of the dangers of revenge and um you know that even if you love the anti-hero there's always the price that they're paying and you don't get a sense that any price is being paid. <laughs> really. Yeah, I, I think that France itself is a very hierarchical society. It feels to me that many of these people are really just um, pawns in a larger plot. And if you think about the reality of both their civic structure and their religious structure, it's very different in um, kind of the tropes and how it unfolds from uh, contemporary English literature, so British or mm-hmm. American fiction um to me it does feel very french and i feel that the french people i know are a little more comfortable with like contradictions in their own life or loved ones or moral code i know several several french people who can um think of say their uh religious beliefs as you know really more part of their culture but you know it's something that they'll still preserve and pass on so i think that in the internal logic of the Count of Monte Cristo, um, it just has to unspool the way. There's so many bureaucrats in this um, book, and that feels so, so French to me. I remember living in Paris, and you know, you can usually talk your way, you know, if, if you're dealing with the TSA or DMV, you know, it's more... Americans are very individualistic, and I don't think French people are, and I don't think the... Um, hero here is driven necessarily by his own internal um you know sort of like thoughts feelings desires as much as him having a certain role and part in a system so yeah that's something kind of interesting to contemplate (laughs) um but even with that like kind of um unfulfilled expectation yeah there is still there, there does remain something that is very satisfying in seeing um, the complexity of his plans come to fruition and just the utter downfall of these men who ruined his life. And and like we said, it, it's like this Old Testament eye for an eye mm-hmm. version of justice yes. that he's enacting on them. But it is so well told, um, you know, as you bounce from chapter to chapter and you see, okay, I'm, I'm maneuvering this economic piece over here. And you're like, I don't why are we getting this and and you see over here like he's he's making this political connection you're like i don't know where this is going and then like the web gets you know they, they get trapped in these webs that that as readers you saw being laid out but um in the way it's narrated you don't quite see the big picture until suddenly everything falls into place and uh, each one of these these men who had wronged him uh you know suffers these terrible fates yes uh it's extremely tightly and intensely plotted um probably more than other works i've you know, read or engaged with yeah you um have to be kind of swept a lot if you read the full unabridged version um there's a lot to keep track of and it, it shows how yes um yeah this um sort of every man who seems so innocent and boy scoutish has acquired this almost superhuman ability to pull the strings. Yeah. And, and again, it's, um, it's just interesting that there's no sense of, um, uh, you know, of this larger moral structure that's going to take care of things. It is strictly, 
you you do whatever actions you need to to advance yourself <laughs> or to carry out your plot and that's the only sense of justice that seems to exist here yeah um, and i think it um really raises some interesting questions you know, about our own you know just contemporary sense of justice i'm getting the idea that there um are swings just in our own lifetime from you know perhaps more punitive uh regimes and you know like these say mandatory um jail sentences you know what's more rehabilitative mm-hmm. <clears throat> so yeah it is um interesting to see you know that he is swept up in these uh forces that at the beginning he has no control over and clearly has no um faith or trust in in quote capital yeah. s the system right yeah <laughs> and um like Fairly recently, we 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 um I guess that maybe when this one air, drops, it'll be a, a couple dozen episodes back. We were doing, talking about an, a noir uh, mm. story of like the private eye. Yes, and I feel and a lot of like, Raymond Chandler vibes. Yes, yes, we're talking about like the postmodern loss of faith in like you said, like the big S system, be it like government or religion or, you know, these things that defined and structured American ideals and American mm-hmm. sense. And, and like in, <laughs> yes. in the 1940s and 50s, you see those crumbling. And I'm wondering if all the back and forth and twists and turns of French history in, uh, you know, the, the, the 1800s, all these revolutions and the changes in government had done something similar, you know, a century earlier. Yes, um, in, everything in France, I see that happening saw about french literature and culture and life that really really resonates with me you know they became fairly secularized um and yes going through a lot of uh social turmoil that we just did not know um as americans mm-hmm. and so yes a um proto-noir is a very um <laughs> a, I, I had never thought about that but i'm like yes he is uh, definitely the uh, person who's enacting uh just this pure justice and yeah uh piling up a uh, body count <laughs> well now now that we've mentioned that there's so many adaptations now i do want a noir adaptation of count of Monte Cristo. Uh, yes <laughs> yes that would be so fit. in like the underbelly of la <laughs> yes either underbelly of la or it could even be would be really interesting would be put it forward a um like a century, you know, think about like France, you know, like under like German occupation of it. There's a lot of um, oh, possibilities. Yeah. So now, now you've inspired me and maybe with better um, fleshed out um, female characters, maybe it could even be a female count or countess. That'd be an interesting twist, I think. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, some of the people who, who wrong him, like they're, they're, you know, some, some women who yes. have their own ambitions instead of that are, uh, you know, Indeed. Uh, for female characters, keep, we do have keep the serial Mercedes. <laughs> yes, and the serial killer. Those, yes. those are the main the main female characters that we get. Yeah, I, I'm picturing played by like uh, Julianne Moore, Tilda Swinton, you know, or something. You know, just like so, you know, on point that way. <laughs> I, it, it, I every time I reengage with the text, I'm like, oh, there is that serial killer subplot, isn't there? <laughs> yes. Uh. <laughs> All right. There, well, do there you are have a lot it? of subplots in this book. Do you think it's? Did you enjoy that? I've never um, done that full immersive experience. It'd be something you know, I would pick up, set down, kind of a thing. I have to admit. Um, so, is it worth it for our listeners to just like go do the fifty-six hours, immerse yourself in this world? Um, it. I enjoyed it, and I think the production was really well done. But absolutely, there were parts where, like, it had been a couple days, and I'm I'm back in. I'm like, okay, that character's name is Ringa, really big bell. Okay, yeah. uh, think back. To, and whereas, like, if, with a book, I could just flip back, you know, ten pages and say, oh, right, you know, or or you know, even a hundred pages. Yeah, this for one. any like, okay, there's, you know. younger listeners, or if you know, you're kind of a uh, press for time, I think um, Three Musketeers is a lot shorter and um, just a tighter plot and so if you want if you're like mm, i'm kind of new to dumas and not sure if i like can commit um that's my feeling I, I would probably start with musketeers and like build up to the um uh endurance you need for the count because it is a, it's an epic for sure or, uh, I mean, there are many abridged versions that give you <laughs> yeah. all the highlights of, Where... you know, you get his his jail time with with uh, the Abe, you get yes. him blessing morale, and you get all the revenge and a lot of 
um, the historical context that's built up quite a bit, which is important to understand the story, but maybe could have been streamlined a bit more. And a lot of the uh, complexity of the machinations for revenge, I think it cut from those and it, it could be a much quicker read that still hits all the high notes. Yes. Yeah, class. All right. Well, do you have any final thoughts on uh, the Count of Monte Cristo? Well, to any uh, high school students listening, you know, get out of your conjugations. You'll you'll learn French sooner or later, and you know, watch this <laughs> film in your class. It's a classic. <laughs> did so? Did you watch it in French, or did you just watch it? <laughs> That's a great the- question. I. It feel like we probably just watched it, but I think seek out a French adaptation. You know, throw throw your teacher a bone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, th- like I said at the beginning, this is one of those stories that um, when we, when Todd and I were brainstorming this podcast, uh, and and um, we we had jotted this down as one of the first texts, like, oh, we should get to that. And I'm glad that we have gotten to it. It is a gloriously convoluted text. Um, but the machinations are really, uh, fascinating to watch and very satisfying to see, um, come to fruition. Like, uh, just from a, a plotting perspective, the way, um, things get introduced that pay off, you know, chapters later and, um, yeah, for as long and complex as the story is, I, I think Dumas and, and Maquette, as much as he may have been involved in some of the plotting, uh, do a good job of, um, tying tying it all together in a way like we've mentioned some of this feels a bit dickensian sometimes dickens i think just forgot some of his subplots <laughs> that <he> introduced <laughs> yes. in his serialized stories and i think everything does get tied up pretty pretty satisfyingly uh in this one it really does yes um kudos um on the structure aspect of storytelling there <clears throat> yes well i think that's going to wrap up this episode thank you charlie for joining us for this discussion and thank Merci you listeners for downloading Mille this episode <laughs> <laughs> for show notes and links oh, for show notes and links to all of the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we would like to thank nick english who designed our logo and scott tofty who composed our theme music if you enjoyed this episode you might want to go check out episode number 138 when we talked about the big sleep i don't think we expected to land on noir but we did <laughs> so i'm gonna recommend that one uh or episode number 215 when we talked about don don quixote another mm. massive text that we streamlined for a plot summary uh and had a good discussion with todd on that one you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or J- at jdorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Dizminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And we enjoy our conversations there with our listeners. And Charlie, could you remind our listeners of your site where they can find some more information about your work? Yes, you can find me at charliewrites.com. That's C-H-A-R-L-Y. And that has links to contact me and some of my pieces. Thank you. And if you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we will be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. I don't know what's happened to Joseph. Yeah, I'm not sure. Did we lose you, Joe? I'm back. I was talking, but I'm back. I uh, hit mute to cough and forgot to unmute. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>